Anybody have kids? Anybody's had kids or anybody when you were a kid thought there was a money tree in the backyard? The money grew on trees? And actually when they made paper money, it did grow on trees, right? They just have to convert it into paper first. But how would you like to have a large pile of cash in your backyard where you can go to and access at any time to do whatever you want it with? Again, I know some of our kids think we have that, right? How would you like this pile of cash to be $245 billion? $245 billion. That's how big the pile of cash that Apple Incorporated had after the end of its first quarter in 2019. Straight cash. It's not the total sales of the company at that time. It wasn't how much the company was worth at that time. I think actually last year, Apple Incorporated became the first trillion dollar company. But Apple at the end of 2019, the first quarter, had $245 billion in cash. You know what? That amount of cash was more than the government of Canada had on February 14, 2020, when we only had $86,377,000 in reserves. Apple even had more cash accessible to them than the United States had, America had stashed away in its gold reserve on January 31st of this year. It had $11,041,059,957.90. But Apple had $345 billion of cash. Their model is that they operate on six months cash reserve, or I forget their model, but they have enough cash reserves that things will totally sell. They can still run for like six months. It's a good model uh, in financial planning that we're doing on one of our equipping groups. They talk about that, but I don't think any of us would have $345 billion. If you do, can I be your friend? Now, Apple Incorporated certainly has a huge pile of cash to draw upon. $245 billion is quite an accomplishment, especially when you consider that this company was close to disappearing in the mid-1990s. At one point, it was so bad at Apple that they predicted within 90 days they would reach a point where they couldn't pay their bills. Yet 20 years later, just over 20 years later, they ended up with this huge amount of money. So what fueled Apple's comeback and caused them to thrive as they are currently thriving. Now, anybody who knows Apple's history would understand that fueled the great comeback was this, what started revealing that great comeback was the return of one of its founders, Steve Job, 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 Jobs, who became CEO of Apple once again in 1997, 12 years after he left the company, not on great terms. They were actually suing each other in 1985. But upon taking the reins again in 1997, he reviewed the product line that Apple offered at that time to the consumers, and then he reduced it by 70%. In order to stop trying to offer a wide range of products to many people, he decided it was better for the consumer, for the customer, if Apple focused all their resources, all their attention, all their knowledge on just a few products. And this precise focus led them in 2001 to introduce to the world a product that, as time has proven, has revolutionized this world. The first iPod. 
Doesn't that look like archaic now? But it revolutionized the world because what came after the first iPod? A whole bunch of other things that started with the letter I. And obviously the most probably uh, uh, revolutionized transformational product that they released was in January 2007 with the first iPhone. These products, if we like them or not, have revolutionized how we interact and connect with one another. And obviously came after that the sales that these products produced, ending up with the lump of cash that they now have on hand. Now, history will dictate if Apple keeps thriving. But in the month of February, we have been looking at, and as we look through Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 25, how we can thrive as Christians. And thrive as Christians, not with having money. Because no matter how much money we have, it doesn't help us in the end. But thrive as believers of Jesus Christ. In this world, as the day of Jesus, Christ draws closer. The end of Hebrews chapter 25. We are now one month closer to his return than we were when we began this sermon series. Specifically, thrive not through the trying of many different things, you know, the latest, greatest teaching that we grasp onto, but thrive as this passage has directed and guide us by being very focused on a few specific things very intentionally. Things that if we and when we apply them to our lives will result, I believe, in us thriving as disciples of Jesus Christ. Again, I would hope we'd agree that thriving as a disciple of Jesus Christ is way better than having a large pile of cash. Even if it's $345 billion. And by thriving, again, I meant, as I've said in previous sermons, having a joy. A joy that's not dictated only by our circumstances, our situations, our lots in life, but a joy that comes forth from out of, out of us because of who is in us. Jesus Christ, the joy giver. Therefore, as John 10.10 speaks of, giving us the abundant life, no matter what. And so far in this this passage of Hebrews, we've discovered in Hebrews chapter 19 and 21, that we can thrive through cultivating a deep prayer life. We can thrive through understanding that Jesus walks with us no matter what, no matter where. When he says, I'm with you to the ends of the ages, we can take that to the bank. Be it on a church service on a Sunday morning to waking up at 3 o'clock with a pain in our gut. Jesus is with us. From Hebrews chapter 10, verse 22, we learned that we could thrive through seeking to be growing deeper in our knowledge of God. In order, so we do that by drawing to, closer to God continually. We never really think we have arrived. We thrive by being genuine before God, others, and ourselves about who we really are, flaws and all. And we thrive through continually trans, being, seeking to be continually transformed more and more into the image of Christ. In doing so, we become more holy. And as we become more holy, we experience God and manifestations of God more and more. And finally, from verse 20 
Two, we thrive through walking obedience to the word and the small commands that it dictates to the large commands. Last week, as we looked at Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23, we saw we can thrive through holding fast the confession of our hope. Who's our hope? Jesus Christ. We hold on to that confession without wavering. Fighting the fight that we need to do in order to keep Jesus as the greatest treasure of our heart. And as we begin, begin today, we look at verses 24 to 25. We are finishing this passage in this sermon series, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. We first see from these verses that we can thrive by first considering hell. Considering hell, that's how the verse 24 begins. We should note that as the author begins verse 24, he's moving very intentionally from the individuality of our faith that he's spoken of in verses 22 and 23, and somewhat in verses 19 to 21, to now towards the collectiveness and connectedness of our faith. Now, it's true that when we're saved, we're saved individually into the body of Christ. We're saved individually solely on what Jesus Christ has done for us. That's for when dad gets saved, the whole family doesn't get saved unless they respond to Jesus Christ. But something we overlook so often in our individualistic culture of today is that when we are saved... We're also saved in the Christ body, the church. That's the context of verses 24 and 25. We're never meant, we're never saved to live our life in isolation, in insulation from, away from others. On the contrary, we have been called to be in fellowship with other believers in the church. And as we'll see, we have been called in order to help one another along and to use our spiritual gifts that it gives each believer, not only help one another, but to help the church as a whole carry out her main purpose in the world. If I asked you what's the purpose of Forsberg Community Baptist Church this morning, what would you tell me? Not the answer that you know is the right answer, but the answer that's in your heart. I've been around churches for 30 years. I've heard it. Well, you're here to entertain me. You're here to take care of my needs. You're here to make sure my, my kids are good and proper and polite. You're here to make me feel good, but not to convict me. And so on. Scripture tells us the main purpose of the church of Jesus Christ is to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ to those who are perishing and then trading, discipling helping to mature those who hear upon hearing the gospel or respond to it are saved from the pit of hell this is why I believe as verse 24 begins the author challenges his readers to now do something for others 
in the context of the church with his saying, let us consider hell. And with saying it, I'll be honest, the author is relaying one of the key ways that we can thrive as a believer. It's through serving our brothers and sisters in the fellowship of the church. Why? Because when we are consider how to stir up a brother or sister, what are we doing? We're taking our eyes off of ourselves. We're taking our eyes off of our problems, our wants, our longings, our disappointments, our struggles, and all the other things that weigh us down. That means consider how then means that when we come to church, we don't make it about us. At least not always. And what we like and what we don't like. Who we speak to and who we don't want to speak to. Who speaks to us and who doesn't speak to us. Well, that Liz never said hello to me at all this morning. How dare she? Well, did you think I was going to say hello to Liz? What's that have to do with it? Let's face it, for those of us being around church, we've heard such pettiness. And it's sad. What musical styles we like, what we don't like, and so forth. What the author is saying here is that when we gather, we're to look beyond ourselves because the church was never supposed to be preference-driven. The church is not about you and I, it's about Jesus Christ. Well, how do we do this? How do we motivate ourselves to look beyond ourselves? Well, one way is practicing all those things we've already talked about up in verses 19 to 23 up to verse 24. Which when we practice them, I believe, will lead us coming to a deeper understanding of the great grace in which we have been saved with. And as a result, we gain an understanding, a greater understanding that they're all equal in Christ. The one next to you, the one that you look down upon the one that you think looks down on you in front of the cross is a great leveling field because nothing we could bring to the cross gave us salvation except the cross itself and if we understand how much more we have in common than we have a difference because Christ has saved all this knowledge ought to propel us to know each other more deeply, to know our stories, to know our hurts, to know our desires, our pains. Why? In order, the next phrase in the statement verse in verse 24 says, to stir one another up. Now, I put the James Bond famous quote, shaken, not stirred in there, because really, stirring up is actually kind of lightweight word. We shouldn't think that this stirring is that we're supposed to do to one another something light and fluffy. On the contrary, in the Greek, the word that they use for stir here, and some of your translation has a different word than my English Standard Version, uh, provocation, provoke, stimulate, incite. That is the Greek understanding behind the word stir up. This directive is not supposed to be meant to be something light. It doesn't mean to be physically harmful to one another either, by the way. 
but it's not meant to be something that we can take, sort of take and sort of just leave. Something we not really have to do if we don't want to practice it. This command is given to all believers. You know, what do we do when we see somebody shipwrecking their faith? Or somebody on a course to shipwreck their faith? Do we, instead of stirring them up, just kind of not say a thing? We do nothing and let them come to ruin? Or do we think it's always somebody else's job? Never ours to straighten a brother or sister out. See, this verse is clear. For a Christian, it's the Christian's job first and foremost. If God has put you in a situation, it is our job to speak into that situation with love and grace, but truth. To stir, to shake a person that needs to be brought to their senses. Because would you let a person run into a flaming house? Or would you stir them up? We stir them up, and this verse 24 goes on, to love and good works. And the stir up in love, I think, means the great commandment. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. Stirring them up to love God more. And then, if we love God more, we know the rest of that verse, right? What does Jesus say is the second? Love our neighbors as ourselves. Well, stirring up produces love of God automatically produces somebody's love, should produce a love for others. Because if we are understanding how much we have been loved by God, we should not have a hard time loving others. And why we need to do this is when, do you, when we do this, when we stir up more love, love of God and love of others, what greater testimony can a church give to a society than the biblical love that we ought to share to one another? We sing the song, right? They know we are Christians by our love. John, the Gospel of John says, but by this all people know that you are my disciples if you have loved for, if you have loved for one another. Verse 24 also says, we stir, provoke one another up towards good works. What good works? In the context of the church, I think this ultimately means using our spiritual gifts collectively towards the proclamation of the gospel message of Jesus Christ. Again, what is the true purpose of the church? See, the true purpose of our, the church is not to make much about us. It's to make much about the God who gave this world such a wonderful gift of Jesus Christ. Now, good question then is, you may be wondering, well, how does doing these things of stirring one, or, one another up with, towards love and good works Help us to thrive as believers of Jesus Christ. Well, besides considering hell takes our eyes off for ourselves. How couldn't we do anything but thrive being among a people that love one another deeply? 
How could we do not thrive, or how could we not thrive if we're in a community on a group, a church that's on mission for the furtherance of the gospel of Jesus Christ when everybody's rolling the same direction? My family and I, after our first ministry experience, we took a break, and my father-in-law lent us a, a fifth wheel. Somebody in that church lent us a truck, and we went on a six-week holiday in the States. My sister asked me to officiate her wedding in Ontario, so we decided to turn it into a vacation. We're in southern Kansas on a Sunday morning, and we're looking for a church, and we come across this Baptist church that had a service like in 15 minutes from when we were driving. So we pulled in the parking lot, and we went in, and I'll be honest, this church was quirky, weird. But they loved one another. We said, we're from Canada. And they said, that's great. And we said, we're just passing through. We're actually on our way. We're going to be like home in a couple days. That's great. We hope to see you next Sunday. <laughs> hope to see you next Sunday. They were just wanting to share the love of God with anybody who came in their midst. We're leaving. They're all on the, like, there's only like a dozen people in this church, probably smaller than what's here today, in a sanctuary that was huge. And they're on the front steps waving goodbye to us. See you next Sunday. They loved one another, though. You got that sense from these people. See, and sadly, how many of us know the opposite? We've hung around with people who, instead of stirring others up, they say nothing. And they usually sit and say, I don't know how Johnny got to that point. He was my friend. Or worse, they tear each other down behind their backs. When we used to do lunch after the services, how many ever enjoy the uh, lunch Sunday meal, roast pastor? He preached too long. Or a roasted worship leader. <laughs> do you believe the song they sang? Or a fellow believer? What's Doug? You did you see Doug today? Doug was sitting in my pew. That was never the intention of what the fellowship was supposed to be like. Or having been part of a fellowship where people just complain that their preferences haven't been met. Or being in a church where everybody seemed more focused on building their own little empires than they were building God's empire. Never really want to work together in order to see God move as the gospel was proclaimed. See, those things are not situations, relationships that promote thriving. They actually promote the opposite. They literally suck the life out of the believer and the church. And so contrary to the biblical idea of what the church should be. Because the church is the place where Christians were designated to thrive the most. That's why I think the writer, as he moves from verse 24 into verse 25, he issues the warning that he does. Saying to Christians, now Hebrews was written to Christians. Yes, they were Jewish converts, but they were Christians. Telling Christians not to neglect or neglecting to meet together as to the habit of some. And to be honest, a statement in our day and age that sounds sort of foreign and abusive, doesn't it? 
and I'm preaching to the choir this morning because you're all here. But we live in this age that we, we have rights, we have, we have freedoms to, to choose. And sadly, we know the statistics. A lot of people choose not to come to church. And that sign is talking about the heathen. That's talking about people who say they're Christians. Yet we cannot deny what the expectation of this verse gives us or tells us. That is, believers of Jesus Christ will attend church and attend it often. Now, to be clear, the author does not mean the church universal. Because some people read this verse, say I'm exempt because the church universal. I can hop from one church to another, never committing. I can stay home and watch church on TV. It's the same thing. As the attendance that this verse speaks of. See, we know this is what the author doesn't mean, the church universal, but he means the specific local body at a specific location with the phrase in verse 25, not electing to meet together. Again, in the Greek, the original language, he uses the word, a compound word for synagogue here versus the traditional Greek word they used for church elsewhere in the New Testament. That Greek word for church in the New Testament could be interpreted as the church universal. But the compound Greek word here means a local congregation at a local point at a place in time. No doubt this means a local representation, physical gathering of the local church. That believers are to not just attend, but commit to. Because some apparently in the context of who this letter was written to had fallen out of the habit of doing so and in doing so back for both back then and for Christians today when we neglect meeting together when we choose not to come to church when we don't commit hear my words clearly it's sin it is sin against God now why do I say this I want to increase church attendance well I do But look at verse 26. When we write a love letter, John, when you used to write love letters to Karen, maybe you still do, your thoughts carried from one sentence to another, didn't they not? Hopefully. Of course, you might be struck by love so much from Karen that they're all over the place. But when we write letters, there's usually a structure. One sentence is related to the next sentence. Verse 25 is before verse 26. Verse 26 is related to verse 25 and 24. What's the first words? So if we keep, or if we go on sinning deliberately, what's the example he just talked about? Was church attendance. And verse 26 to the end of chapter 10 talks about apostasy, falling away from the faith. The first start of that is not committing to the body where we were designed to thrive. So when we're deliberately, persistently choosing something else other than coming to church, committing to a church, we put ourselves in a slippery road called sin. That if we continue 
will end in destruction. And I'll be, I've struggled with this for years, but I have a hard time, I'll just be quite frank. And I know some of you have relatives and friends that say they're Christians, but never attend church. I have a hard time putting the same words in the same sentence. How, as a believer of Jesus Christ, we cannot find ourselves in his representation of his body called the church and say we're believers. Now, we need to guard against legalism with this command. I don't think this means that if we're scheduled to work for a certain day, and that day is a Sunday, missing church is not a sin. Or if we wake up sick, we physically cannot because we're in a long-term care facility. We wake up and there's 12 feet of snow because we live in Newfoundland. Or it would cost us our lives like it is for some of our brothers and sisters today where they cannot go to church around the world because they will be executed. There's legitimate reasons that prevent us from coming to church, committing to the local church, and that's not sin. But I think what it does mean is when we intentionally choose something else rather than attending church. You know, the Sunday morning last-minute call to work? Hey, we could really use you here. You can make triple time and a half. You can say no and say yes to church. How about sports? I can think of only one family that successfully took their boys to sports and had them being radical, committed Christians. along with their mom and dad. Or Sunday's the only day I can shop. Or I was out late last night, I just need to get more sleep. Go to bed earlier. Or come to church and sleep in the pew. I don't feel like it. Well, get your eyes off yourself and get in the... And they're... We choose these, we're walking on thin ice. That if it breaks will cause us not to thrive, but to die. So because of this was why we must fight hard against such a sin. Since I think it's obvious that if we want to thrive in the Christian life, part of the solution of flourishing means we don't sin. We don't choose deliberately to sin. Because we're not walking like Christ then, we're walking not... <laughs> A opposite of Christ, so how can we expect to be holy? And how can we not thrive if we don't join this entity that we've been saved into? We don't endeavor to find out. We don't commit. We don't strive to use our spiritual gifts for the good of the body. And I know it has there's a whole bunch of reasons, but I know what's going to happen with our annual meeting, and I don't mean to be pessimistic. We'll have a few there, but that's part of the church. But if we're never around long enough, in order to know each other in the fellowship more deeply, how do we ever know to stir one another up, or how to? How can we ever consider how? Etc., etc., etc. Since, again, we were never meant to do this Christian life alone. 
But we've been called to do this Christian life in the context of fellowship with the body. The body that we've been called part of. Why? In order to encourage, encourage one another. Notice in verses 24 to 25. This is the second time that the word one, or the phrase one another has been used. It's not the only time in the New Testament. How many one another's are there in the New Testament? There's your homework for the rest of the week. See here in the context of verse 25, encouraging one another by attending church, by committing church regularly in order to stir up one another, but also support one another emotionally, spiritually, physically in the context of a body. Have you ever prepared a Sunday school class and nobody's shown up? One fear of pastors, not just this pastor, but pastors preparing a sermon. You don't ever get to preach because nobody shows up. How about a special song and nobody shows up to hear it? One of the easiest ways to encourage our brothers and sisters who are serving is to actually be there physically and hopefully awake, even though I said you can sleep in the pews earlier on. And circling back to verse 24, we are called to stir up one another. That means choosing to be in a relationship with each other deeply. Have you ever faked it in church? Of course, this has never happened to you, right? Well, even as a pastor, but Jelaine and I used to drive 45 minutes to church on a Sunday morning when we just had the girls, well, Demars especially, and, you know, she would be screaming the whole way because she's hungry. We'd forget the diaper bag. My wife was on worship. There, and we'd not, we'd, be, we'd not be nice to one another on the way. We walk in the church. Hi, Dave. How you doing? How you doing, Dave? Everything's great. And there's quorum for that. But on the flip side, why do we eyes on the nice face? What would we lose if we say, you know what? This has been a horrible morning. We forgot the diaper bag. We're worried that she's going to have a number two. My wife and I are irritable because she is up all night. And can you pray for us? See, we're called to be in a relationship with each other deeply, not through faking it, but by being real. Being authentic, being honest with one another. Because what happens if we're more honest with one another? One, we realize that we're kind of all fighting the same fight. Two, that person who presents themselves as perfect, we get the sense that, hey, they're not perfect. I'm not perfect. We have actually more in common. Then we'll thrive because we realize we can not waste all that energy putting on a good show. And as we're more honest, we thrive because you ever lit a match to try to keep warm? You ever light a forest to try to keep warm? Would you rather have one branch to light your fire or have a lot of branches to light your fire? Well, a Christian by himself is no use to anything. 
get them together with a bunch of Christians that burn hot, they burn really hot. So as we conclude this sermon and this series, as the day of Jesus draws near, I hope he's the prize that we're seeking. May we thrive until that day. Focusing on a specific few things as Apple did to save their company. But I hope we understand that eternity with Jesus is a lot greater than having a successful company. So may we consider how to I stir one another up by being outward focus. No longer neglect the meeting together by attending. When we wake up in those, that, those mornings and we just don't feel like it, we just go because that's what we're called to do. And not just go, we commit. And may we seek to encourage one another in whatever way we can, being this physically present, speaking the truth and love to a brother or sister, but keeping to do these things until the day of Jesus comes. So we not just survive, but we thrive. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for saving us into the church. Where we are to be accepted, we are to be loved, and we are to accept and love because of what you've done, Jesus, on the cross for all who believe in you. Lord God, we pray that you would allow us to thrive individually as believers as we set our, our intentions to do these things but also allow our church to thrive to the point that the neighborhood would wonder what's going on because there's this strange attraction that's coming out from us because we're burning white hot for you. So teach us more, Father, by your Holy Spirit in these coming days by prompting us to walk and therefore thrive. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.